Good morning, everybody. Uh, let's go ahead and turn to Jonah, chapter 1. We uh, want to be able to read the uh, entire chapter today. We began this journey last week through the book of Jonah, uh, and it looks like we're going to spend uh, this week and next week on Jonah, chapter 1. Um, I don't think we'll be spending three weeks on each chapter. There are four chapters. Um, hopefully, it'll go a little bit quicker than that. We'll see. All right, Jonah, chapter 1. And if you don't have your Bibles uh, with you, we will uh, flash the scripture passages on the screen. And I'm going to just read the chapter with us, and then we'll dig in a little bit. Here we go. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down, and he fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Uh Uh-oh. Verse 8, so they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do, and where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what shall we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. This is God's word. How y'all doing? Everybody doing okay? Does it feel like it's darker in here? Is it darker in here? Just my eyes. What? It's just up here. I got you. Thanks. Story of Jonah, probably the most familiar and I would say the least understood book in all of the Bible. We think of the story, those of us maybe grew up in church or maybe you didn't, but a lot of people know about the story of Jonah, the guy that was eaten by the fish, right? And that's about it. We kind of don't know well, what happened after, right? The book of Jonah is essentially about three things. And we're going to hammer away at these three things over and over again in the upcoming week. It's about our sin, it's about God's grace, and it's about God's mission. Say that with me. Our sin... God's grace, God's mission. That's what the book is about. And what we're going to do is those three words, you know, maybe we know them intellectually, kind of know what they mean, but this book more than any other book sort of gets really deep, okay? And like looking at a jewel, looking at a gemstone that's multifaceted in its beauty, we're going to look at those three things in a very multifaceted way and see what they mean. Because when we do understand what they mean, they will result in life transformation for us. So what we're going to do is jump right in, jump right in, okay? Verse 1, let's look at that again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness come up before me. For those of you that were not here last week, brief recap, and verse 1 and 2 tells a brief recap. Here's the kind of the context. Prophet Jonah is a, is a prophet in the, in, the, in the kingdom of Israel. At this time, it's around 750 B.C. The nation of Israel has been separated into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is called, confusingly enough, Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. 
okay? And God comes and gives Jonah a very peculiar uh, 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 a job, if you will. An Old Testament prophet, normally the two things. They had a word that God gave to preach to their people, the Israelites, to repent and turn to the Lord, or they preached against another nation or another empire. But rarely does a prophet be given a task that says, no, I want you to actually physically go. Physically go to that place called Nineveh and preach against it for its wickedness come up before me. Again, just a little bit of context. Assyria is modern-day Iraq. Nineveh, capital-leading city, may be comparable to Baghdad. So imagine a Jew today being commissioned by God to stand in front of people in Baghdad, at the center of Baghdad, and preach the God of Israel called you to repent from your wickedness and turn to the Lord. The message couldn't have been more imposing. Nineveh is the baddest, wicked, God even says it, it's wicked, it's a sin city. Not only that, but it's well fortified. The Bible says it a little bit later, it took three days, three days to get through the city. I said last week, it takes about half a day to go through the entire city of Chicago, about 3.5 million people. Three days, that's how big the city is. And yet God says, I want you to go to the center of it and preach against it for its wickedness has come up before me. This is what you call a no-win situation, right? It's an assignment that comes so we go, are you sure? And so what does Jonah do? Look at verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Where's Tarshish? Tarshish is modern-day Spain. So check this out. Map. Nineveh is 500 miles east of where Jonah is. Tarshish is 2,500 miles west of where Jonah is. Okay? As I said last week, it's the prayer that we pray often, Heavenly Father, no, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay? That's pretty much his prayer. Okay? Y'all haven't done that? Give me a break. We say that every day. Dear Heavenly Father, that area, no, in Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen. That's what Jonah does. Here's the thing, though. And here's the first principle that you and I need to understand. Essence of sin. We see it right here. The essence of sin is running away from God. The essence of sin is running away from God. Now, here's the thing. As soon as I talk about sin, and there are non-Christians among us, I'm always, always conscious of that. You know, people hear the word sinner, and they have this reaction like, oh, why? Because the reality is religious people have to use the word sin or sinner to exclude, to marginalize, and to oppress. And here's the deal. If you truly understand the nature of sin, as Scripture says, and understand the nature of what a sinner is, you would be the last person to oppress, to marginalize, to exclude. Did you get that? Did you get that? Okay, so for those of you that are going, oh, here's the thing. Sin, sin is running away from God. Now, here's the cool thing. In Hebrew, when it says Jonah ran from the Lord, Jonah fled from the Lord, literally it says Jonah fled from the, check this out, in Hebrew, face of the Lord. In other words, Jonah is not running from the spatial presence of God. He's running from the relational presence of God. Whenever in the Old Testament it says, Moses met God face to face, it's not talking about the fact that God's physical face was right in front of Moses and Moses was in God's physical presence. It meant that the very center of God came into Moses' center. There's relational intimacy. Moses met God face to face, relational intimacy. To meet God face to face is to have the very center of God come into the center of your being and for the center of your being to be in the center of God. That's what Moses is running. Moses. <laughs> That's what Jonah is running from. He is running from the relational presence of God. And when you understand that, you understand that you and I, human beings, and this is briefly kept from last week, there are two ways that we run from God. One way, one way is the sailors, the pagan sailors. In other words, they're idolaters. They worship other idols. They worship other gods. They're irreligious. Their perspective on life is there's no God. Nobody tells me what to do. I live my life the way I want to. It's the younger brother in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. Pimps, prostitutes, drug addicts. That's me. That's one of the ways we run. But who's running from God in this book? It's the prophet. It's you sitting out there in church every Sunday. It's you externally boy couldn't couldn't look like more of a better christian 
It's the moral person. It's the man who loves God's law. It's the man who is a prophet of God. It's the man who has been called and chosen by God. The man that's running is not the irreligious. Nobody tells me what to do. Pins, prize, and drug dealers. It's the guy who is religious, who is good, who is moral, who is obedient and compliant. That's who's running. Why? Essence of running away from God is not just breaking rules. It's a break in relationship. Essence's sin is saying to God, I am the master of my own ship. I run my own life. Nobody tells me what to do, not even you. It's Genesis 3. It's Genesis 3. Adam and Eve. God comes, and what does Adam, what does Adam and Eve say? God, we could choose to live under your rule and your reign and be submissive to you. And it's in that that God says, you have life, that you have life. But Adam and Eve choose to come out under from that rule, reign, submission of God and decide, we're going to be our own Lord. We're going to be our own master. Essence of sin is not just saying no to God. Essence of sin is saying yes to ourselves as God. This is why obedience is so hard. Anybody find it hard to obey God? You know why it's so hard to obey? Because when we obey God, we have to disobey ourselves. And it's in disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. Does it make sense? It's not just, well, I choose not. No, when you obey God, you have to say to yourself, I die to myself and I say no to me as God. There is a tug of war for your soul every single moment of your life. And the tug of war is you saying, I, I am the runner, master of my life. I run this ship. Or, God, I submit to you. I yield to you. I surrender to you. Essence of everything that ails us fundamentally is you saying, I am God. I am Lord. You're sitting there going, I don't do that. I don't do that, Peter. Really. Here's what I hear. Religious people, church people. You may not say this, but you think this. I try Christianity and it doesn't work. Well, what do you mean? I'm good. I'm moral. I go to church. I tithe. I do everything I'm supposed to do. And my life just isn't going the way I want it to. He doesn't answer my prayers. Why is that hardship coming into my life? What are you saying? Here's what you're doing. There's something else besides God that is at the center of your life. But it's masked by external conformity. It's masked by looking good on the outside. But that thing is your real God. God's not in control of your life. You are. And as long as you're not getting that thing, you think life isn't fair. It's not going as I want it to. Well, who's in control of your life? Here's what I hear, singles. I broke up with that guy. I broke up with that guy because he wasn't a Christian. But I'm still single. Translation, if I break up with that guy, then God will give me a Christian guy, right? So he doesn't. My life isn't going... That guy wanted to sleep with me. I said no, because I'm a Christian, and I'm committed to sexual purity. And he broke up with me, and now I'm still single. How is that fair? The question is, who are you doing it for? God? Or for you? You see how we control God? He doesn't have control over our lives. I act this way, I respond well. All these things. And as long as I do these things, I expect my life to go as I planned. Darn it. And when it doesn't. I'm not saying there isn't disappointments and hardship. But when we encounter these things and your response is one of anger, resentment, consuming worry, jealousy, hatred. It's a sign. What's a sign? God's not in control of your life. You are. You are. As long as we're in control of our lives, we are running from God. You know what imagery came to my mind? I walk into restaurants, you know, sometimes with my wife. You know what's the saddest thing in the world? Is when you see a couple who look like they've been married. And they're sitting there for an hour and a half to two hours during dinner. And not a single word passes between them. You could be physically here. Physically doing all the right things. And yet, you are Running. Jonas? Am I talking to any Jonas? Okay, just me. Are you trying to control God with your morality? Ultimately, a life circumstances reveals the true motives of our hearts. 
Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the crazy thing, right? We see in Jonah chapter 1 why he ran, our behavior of how we ran. We see in chapter 4 why he ran, right? And those of you that were here last week, this is the what of this book. Look at Jonah chapter 4, okay? I'll just flash the screen on the screen. Jonah chapter 4, this is the message version, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. So here's what happens in between, right? Oh, we're going to cover. Here's what happens, right? So Jonah eaten by the fish, right? And, and chapter 2 is a prayer inside the fish for Jonah. And then Jonah chapter 3, the fish spits him out, right? And Jonah finally goes to Nineveh. He preaches, and here's what happens. Jonah was furious. Why? Because they repented. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. He says, I knew it when I was back home. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. And as I said this week, we are, we are confronted with a deeply, profoundly theological question in Jonah's response, which is, huh? What? Why is he responding the way he, he preaches, is obedient to God, and the entire city repents and turns to God, and he gets angry? Why? Here's the, here's the moment in the book that's going to capture all of us. Jonah ran, not because he's afraid of failure. He ran because he's afraid of success. He runs because he's afraid of success. He runs because, God forbid, they might actually respond. And his response? They don't deserve it. Jonah's response? God, I would rather have you wipe them out. At the root of Jonah's disobedience is, check this out, self-righteousness. Why is this important? I want to dig in here a little bit, church. And, and, uh, and boy, if we don't get this this, this, this entire book, the study of this book, is going to be a struggle. Listen, because of his self-righteousness, Jonah doesn't understand the true nature of sin. Jonah is able to see their sin, but he's unable to see his sin. In his self-righteousness, Jonah thinks sin is out there. It's what people do out there. And he's unable to see sin in here. Because Jonah is self-righteous, he is unable to see the true nature of sin. Because Jonah is unable to see the true nature of sin, he is unable to understand the true nature of grace. He can't understand grace. Because to him, grace is, we deserve it, they don't. And because Jonah's unable to understand grace, he will never come to understand the nature of the gospel. And as long as Jonah is unable to understand the nature of the gospel, he will never be able to fulfill the mission of God in the world. Simply put, simply put, we talk all the time in here about how we are missional, called, and sent by God. At the root of what makes us effective or not is whether you and I are self-righteous. Now, we use the word self-righteous, and in our culture, we think of that cocky, arrogant, jerk, you know, someone who's, you know, that, that's self-righteous. He's self-righteous, and we don't like. But here's what self-righteous simply means, biblically. Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and on, that every single one of us, human beings, we try and patch up a righteousness of our own. That is, I said this last week, we try and, 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 and patch up a thing. We try and strive and accomplish, do something that, that makes us feel, I'm not a bum. Because of this, I'm acceptable. Because of this, I am worthy. Because of this, I am somebody. It's the scene from Rocky, when Rocky's talking to Adrian. Adrian. At the very, he's about to fight, you know, Apollo, right? And Rocky's talking, and, and Adrian goes, are you sure you want to do this? And Rocky says in his voice, I need to, why? Because that's how I know I'm not a bum. Being a prize fighter and fighting Apollo is his righteousness. That's how he knows I'm not a bum. You think he's the only one? You and I have it. And here's the thing. Because we do that, you know what we do? Because we do that, we tap into this sin nature mechanism in us that has to think that we're better than somebody or else we can't live with ourselves. 
We have to. That's why you and I compare all the time. Again, church, am I the only one that does this? Say preach if you mean if you agree. Preach. All of us, right? We have something in our lives. Why? Because the nature of who we are is deep within us. Our sin mechanism says, I have to be better than somebody or feel like I'm better than somebody at this or else we can't live with ourselves. And the more people we are better than or we feel better than, the better we feel about ourselves. This is what ails us personally and societally. Can you imagine a society in which people stop doing this? What would that world look like? Can you imagine a society in which people were walking around with a chip on their shoulders? I have to be better than somebody. And so I'm going to patch up my own righteousness. What is Jonah doing that with? He's doing that with his racism, his ethnicity, his pedigree. It's very common, especially in the country that we live in. Even the bottom rung of society, they go, my race, my ethnicity makes me better than you. Do you see it? Here's the thing, though. Self-righteousness, oh, sin runs deep. It goes both ways. Because there's some of y'all sitting here going, I'm better than that bigot. I'm better than that racist. Why? Because I'm not. I'm more. You see how we do that? You see how we do that? You see how we do that? Self-righteousness. Both ways. All the time. All the time. We take about just, we take just about anything and we do this. Here's, here's another one. Here's another one. Some of us are better at sort of breaking rules than keeping rules. We relate better with the prodigal son. Anybody? This might sound weird, but your pastor could relate more to the rule breakers than the rule keepers, you know? And here's how I become self-righteous. I look at people who are very good rule keepers, you know? And, who, and I go, I know I'm not all that, and you think you are. <laughs> oh, I hope that's nervous laughter like, you're just talking about me right now, Pastor. We do. We look, I look at, you know, the rule keepers, the straight and narrow, you know, big fat King James Bible, walk around, you know. I, I look at them and go, I like to tuck my shirt out. I like to live crazy, you know. I, I go, I go, you think, you think because you are good. You know what I'm doing? I am being self-righteous against the self-righteous. <laughs> Some of you, you've lived a very hard life, a difficult life. You're self-righteous. How? You look down at people in this church around you who you think has lived a very comfortable, charmed life, and you go, you're clueless, self-righteous. You've suffered. I've suffered. You have no idea what suffering is. And because I've suffered, I'm more special. Self-righteousness both ways. It's always easier to pick out false mistakes in other people than it is in us. Amen? Okay, one last thing and then I'm done. In our culture today. What is, I'm trying not to swear. I'm sorry, okay? I'm trying to be calm. What is the matter with the Christians in this community thinking that we're better than Muslims? I'll tell you why that betrays the gospel. Because if you think that you are better than Muslims, you think that you're saved because you have right doctrine, because you have the right belief system. Is that what saves you? What saves you is the gospel. And the gospel says this. All human beings, all humanity is absolutely fallen and depraved. And the only way that we can be saved and welcomed into God's family is by sheer grace and free mercy of God. So if anybody's walking around feeling like I am better than Muslims, then you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is you are more wicked and sinful than you dare believe, but in Christ you are more accepted. It's not your belief system. It's not because you have right doctrine you're better than Muslims. If you're a Christian, your attitude is I serve the Muslim, I love the Muslim, and if needed, I die for the Muslim. How do we... Oh, yeah. Self-righteousness. The only thing that will heal you, I'm serious, because if you're like me, the average person, when you walk out of these doors, every day, you either fluctuate from, I feel superior, I'm better than everybody, to I'm the worst thing in the world. Back and forth. Back and forth. Huh? If you're doing really well and you're accomplishing things, you're physically attractive, you get the grades, you're successful, you constantly compare yourself to other people, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better than y'all. Or if you fail miserably, you despise yourself and you despise other people. Back and forth, back and forth. And you're a miserable person. And frankly, you're a miserable person to be around. 
What will heal you? The only thing that heals you is the gospel. Why? The gospel comes. And for those of us that self-righteousness, I've got these things, the gospel comes and says, remember that you are more wicked and sinful than you dare believe, child. And it humbles you. And you're not saved because of your morality, your good works. You're saved because of my grace. But it also gives you joyful confidence because in Christ, I'm accepted. I'm loved. He did that for me. He did that for you. Gospel of Jesus Christ daily. Jonah is a stranger to sin. He thinks they're messed up. They need to repent. But he doesn't see the sin in himself, you guys. So he's a stranger to grace. He thinks that his righteousness is about his morality, his pedigree. He's a prophet of God from Israel. And he fails to see that he is saved by grace and grace alone. And because he fails to see that, he looks at Nineveh and he says, they don't deserve it. Church, people of God, are you struggling with this? Can, I, can we just have a moment of honesty? What is your self-righteousness? Anybody bold enough to like, what is your self-righteousness? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's amazing how with age comes maturity and wisdom. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, you. That's right. Yeah, go ahead. Self-righteousness, being an artist. Thank you for being honest, right? Yeah. It's the fact that you're creative, right? The fact that you have this gift in art, right? That's your identity. That's your significance. That's your meaning. Who else? Yeah? Oh, that's good. You hear what he said? He's a biblical studies major. And he says, I think I know God better than anybody else. This is what I love about our church. Because he just spoke for like 90% of (laughs) y'all. One more person over here. Somebody raise their hand. Over here. Yeah. Being in medicine. Oh, see what I'm saying? That's what I love about our church. I mean, good God, we could have an Oprah moment and every single person get up and go, this is what it is. But here's the thing. After about 20 people, I can go, okay, I think we're done. Because how many of y'all could relate to that? We'd be like, yeah, all of us, all of us. Do you understand that as long as you are trying to patch the righteousness of your own, you'll never understand sin? And if you don't understand sin, you won't understand grace. If you don't understand grace, you don't understand the gospel. And if you don't understand, how in the world is Jonah going to preach about sin and grace when he has no clue what they are? We go on. Verse 3. So he went down to Joppa where he found a ship headed for the port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Here's a sermon principle real quick and then we'll move on. Here it is. Fugitives will always find a ship waiting for them. Mike, did you like this one? Yeah? If you want to flee from God, if you want to take refuge in your own feelings, your own wisdom, if you want to run away from God, there will always be a ship to take you. Always someone, always something ready to take you to Tarshish. Let me just flesh this out a little bit more. Some of you guys know I have some massive health problems. I'm on cholesterol medication. Because two, two and a half years ago, I went to see my doctor, annual checkup, and he said, dude, your cholesterol level, like back cholesterol level, is like off the charts, man. It's like four or five times more than what it should be. And he says, you need to chill out on the fats. You know what I'm saying? You need to chill out on that bad food. And I told him, I said, doc, do you know where I live? I said, I live in a place where from my house, I can smell Popeye's chicken. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm serious. I live two blocks from Popeye's chicken right at the corner of California diversity. I said, what you asking me to do? You literally asked me to go against the grain of society. I'm serious. You know why? Because a doctor. <laughs> it's so dramatic. I know, Michael. Hello. No, in all seriousness, come on, man. I mean, I, health problems. You guys are all laughing at my own expense. No, doctor was serious. He said, Peter, in order, I'm, he said, you have to cut out the fat. You're four or five times, you need to be on this medication. And I told him, I said, when I get out of my house and I walk, I walk into the church, I walk into the office. At the corner is a Popeye's. Right next to it is an IHOP. Across from that is this new In-N-Out Burgers where it's like 150% greasy hamburgers. But here's the thing. Superficial analysis, I look at that and I go, man, it is so much, so much harder to obey the doctor 
and so much easier just to disobey. But if I disobey my doctor's orders, then I'm going as a grain, going against the grain of my physical being. Your heavenly doctor comes and he says, obedience, holiness. And you live in a city where in every corner it makes it very difficult to be obedient to your doctor's orders. Every corner there is something, if you want to disobey, something or someone that will take you to where you want to go. If you harbor impure thoughts, eventually there will be a bed. If you heartful, resentful thoughts, eventually there will be stones to throw and knife to stab with. If you harbor self-pity, eventually there will be an opportunity to steal, to lie, to cheat, to embezzle. And superficial analysis, look, you look at your mom going, God, it is so much harder to obey you in this. It is so much harder. But just as you're going against the physical being of your body by disobeying your doctor's orders, when you disobey, you're going against the very being of your soul. Anybody that wants to disobey, anybody that says, I want to go the other way. I know my wisdom, my refuge. There will always be someone or something to take you there. Two applications real quick. This is the reason why we make bad decisions. We're running away from God. If you're running away from the source of wisdom and truth, you're going to make bad decisions. You're going to make ill-timed, misinformed decisions. It's when you're running from God that your loved ones will say things like this. You're dating who? You want to marry him? You want to live where? You want to go into? Think about some of the biggest regrets in your life. How many of you could honestly say, that decision was made when I was running? One person. Okay. Singles, don't ever, ever get married when you're running away from God. Please don't get married while you're running from God. I know this is very personal to some of you. Not only because you're running, but you know somebody who got married when they were running. You're running away from the source of truth and wisdom. And you're going to make bad decisions. Secondly, secondly, real quick. When you're running from God, you're always going to hurt people around you. It's not just about you. Look at Jonah. Because of him, everybody on the ship, everybody on the ship, is in danger all of their lives and their livelihood. They're throwing away the cargo. Why? Because of Jonah. Your disobedience and your sin always goes beyond just you. Dads, husbands, your unwillingness to follow God and be the man that you need to be will always have collateral damage. It'll affect your family. Men, are you listening? Your decisions are never just about you. They will affect other people. Always. Always. Let's finish. Verses 4 to 12. We read it. So here's the, just for the sake of time, principle, and then I'm going to move on. What does God do? What does God do to Prophet Jonah as he's running? What does God do to Prophet Jonah as he's running away from the presence of God, running from God relationally? God sends a storm. And the storm is both good news and bad news about what it means to live in God's world. Which do you want first, good news or bad news? See, this is our generation. We are so cynical. Give me the bad news. I'm used to bad. I could handle it. Here's the bad news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is that when you disobey, you run from God, there is always a storm cloud attached to it. Always. And I love this analogy that I heard from another pastor. Disobedience to God, it's, it's, and its effect on us, and its effect on us internally is, is more like opening a can of radioactive matter than it is about getting, it is getting stabbed or, or, or shot to death. There's two ways to kill somebody. 
One way is to shoot and kill. It's quick. It's, right, it's violent. It's right there. Another way is radioactive matter. Radioactive matter, you get in the presence of it. You don't know that it's affecting you. But it begins eating away at your insides. And you don't, you don't normally notice it right away. Jonah, look at Jonah. He's not beset with the storm. He's, he's sleeping. And by the way, the word sleep, the only other time that word appears in Hebrew is when God put Adam to sleep in order to pull the rib out of his skin. In other words, he is in a deadly trance. And he doesn't even notice it. Practical application, sexual immorality, sleeping around, will feel really good at first. And then you'll lose joy, intimacy. First rush of cocaine feels really good. And then addiction. Harboring bitterness and contemplating ruin of somebody that you hate initially will feel good, but eventually you will be a prisoner of your own anger and your own bitterness. There's always a storm cloud attached to running. Here's the good news. Principle. What does God do? God sends a storm. And storms are merciful interventions of God and not punishment. Storms are merciful interventions of God and not punishment. That's the thing that we need to wrap our brains around, you guys, if we're going to understand this book. God sends the storm to Jonah to show how weak he is, how dependent he is, to show Jonah that he is not a self-made person, to show Jonah that he is not a self-reliant, to show Jonah just how weak, how foolish, and how stupid he is, the idols in his life of his ethnicity, his race, and his superiority. God calls Jonah to a mission that God knows he's going to fail. God knows that Jonah's going to fail. Why? Because unless Jonah failed miserably at what it meant to be a preacher, he was never going to be a good preacher. He had to come to a place of looking at himself going, I am weak. I am stupid. I've got gods in my life. God's not the center of my life. I am running from God. Unless he came to see that, he would never be the person that God wanted him to be. Storms, if you are running from God, are not punishment but merciful interventions brought on by God's affection rather than his anger. Some of you building your lives around something and you're saying, because of this, and some of you are so honest enough to share it, because I'm an artist, because I'm a medical student, because I know Bible, because of all these things. We build our lives on these things and we find our significance and our meaning and we think these things are what gives us life. And then everything comes crashing down and the thing that God shows you and me is you are weak, you are dependent child. Do you not see that? Sometimes God lets us have it. He gives us success. We, we, he lets us have the success. And it's even worse because we get the thing that we need and we realize it's not big enough for our soul. And God says, I created life. You are a creature. I created life. Don't you need, don't you see how you need to be related to me in order to experience life? And I use the word intervention on purpose. Some of my homeless friends help me understand this. Because if you're part of AA, if you've ever been a part of AA, interventions are what? To that person who's self-destructing and don't know it. And the only way, only way that that person will not go down the path of self-destruction and might literally kill himself is there's a group of friends who love him, who love her, come around and say, you are not strong. You are weak. You are dependent. You are in denial. We need to wake you up to your true condition. Because if you don't, if you don't, you might die. Here's an example. My wife, doctor, thankful for her. Example, another medicine example. Say that you know somebody who has a severe heart condition and they need a certain medicine in order to survive. But in their delusion, because they're sick, they think that that medicine is poison. So anytime that love person tries to come and give them that medicine, they fight you, they bite you, they punch you, they do whatever they can. And now they're at a point where they can no longer flee. So what do they do? And what do you do if you love them? Do you leave that person alone? If that person doesn't take the medicine, that person dies. What does love do? You know what love does? Love comes with gentle violence. Love comes and says, I will punch you in the face if I need to because you need this medication. <laughs> you know, I said that because there's a fellow, I won't mention who, every Sunday he comes up to me and he goes, thank you for punching me in the face today. I needed that. When we are delusional, the 
medicine. How does this apply? God comes to you and me. Don't you see? Oh my gosh, I know that you and I are a certain generation. Some of us live in this culture where we are so entitled and we, we are so, so stuck on ourselves and it is impossible to fathom a God, a God who loves us too much to let us alone. So he comes with tender violence and he comes with dogged love. He comes with determined love and he says, I will hurt you just enough to wake you up to your condition. Because we think following God, being radical for God, living a life for God ultimately is narrow. It's going to limit life. It's going to limit joy. And God comes and says, it's not the poison you think it is. It's life. It's food. Grace is God's merciful intervention from our self-destructive behavior. And until you, until you and I see God sends storms as interventions and not punishments, we'll never get better. We'll be bitter. Guys, would it have been better if God left Jonah alone? Tell me. Answer? No. Jonah thinks fleeing from God is the only way that he will be free and that he finds out that he is enslaved. And God in his love pursues Jonah. Not to angrily strip away his freedom, because that's what you and I think, but to affectionately strip away his slavery so we can truly be free. Here's the rule in life that God wants to teach you and me day after day with this gospel. Unless you realize that you are incompetent to run your life, you are incompetent to run your life. I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. God says, you. (laughs) And God in his love comes. And here's the key, though. Here's the key. It's not just the storms. Because storms will do one of two things. Some of you sitting here. Storms will make some people angry, bitter, and run further and faster from God. And some people will respond in submission and in humility. And as a result, become wiser and deeper. It's not the storms itself, church. It's your response. You're here. You go, I'm bitter and I'm angry because of so-and-so. I'm telling you right now, so-and-so is the occasion for your bitterness, but it's not the cause of your bitterness and anger. The cause of your bitterness is the fact that you're proud. The cause is the fact that you want to be in control of your life. The cause is the fact that you have made that thing your God and you're not getting it. The cause is the fact that you're failing to realize that you are not competent to run your life. How do we become wiser and deeper? I'm going to end with this real quick. In verse 12, he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. It'll become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Here are three principles real quick. Number one, if you're in the midst of a storm, you want to become deeper and wiser. Stand up and take responsibility. It's amazing, Jonah says, doesn't it? He says what? He says, it's my fault. It's my fault. He stopped making excuses, using rationalizations. And this is so hard for us, isn't it? Do you know why it's so hard? Because innately, you know what our parents did? Eve, what happened? Snake made me do it. Adam, what happened? Eve made me do it. We will blame everyone and everything, but we will not take ownership. Is that true? The first place of becoming wiser and deeper is to say, I did it. It's my fault. It's my sin. It's my pride. It's my arrogance. It's my having idolatry in my life. It's me. And when you're willing to admit your sin, you'll see grace everywhere. Secondly, stop bargaining with God. Do you see what the sailors are concerned with? Only one thing. How do I get out of this mess? I will do anything, everything to get out of this mess, God, right? And they're thinking of a nobody but themselves. And they're saying, God, I will serve you. I will love you if you get me out of this. And God comes to you and says, you're not willing to give me the only thing that I want, which is you. How do we bargain with God? How do you bargain with somebody who has everything? Do you ever think about that? How do you bargain with somebody who says, you got nothing I can bargain with. I have everything. Stop bargaining. In other words, here's what your response is. And this is so hard, church. But it's not to come and say, I will serve you. I will love you if you get me out of this mess. But it's simply come and say, I will serve you, period. I will love you, period. 
whether you get me out of this or not. Period. And no excuses. No blame shifting. No bargaining. Period. And lastly, Grace, come on up. Where are you, Grace Bach? Is she here? Take refuge in God and not refuge from God. Jonah says, throw me in. Jonah says, throw me in. You know what that is? It's his way of giving control to God. It's his way of saying, God, you're it. Jonah says, throw me in. And here's the thing. You think when Jonah says, throw me in, he knows what's waiting for him underneath the sea? No. He has no idea the grace of provision that's underneath the sea. And yet Jonah has come to the place. No excuses, no bargaining. Jonah simply says, throw me in. He has come to that place where he's saying, I will serve you, period. I will give you my all, period. Not whether, not if, period. I surrender all, period. And when he does, he finds grace's provision. Why? Why? Here's the great news. Years later, Jesus is talking to a bunch of religious Pharisees, Matthew 12, and he says, how do we know that you're God? And he says, the sign of Jonah. You see, years later, centuries later, somebody else came along. And somebody else said, throw me in so that other people can live. Somebody else said, throw me in and I'll be under for three days and three nights so that the storm could cease and you could experience the sunshine of God's mercy and grace. Somebody else, centuries later, came and said, throw me in. And here's the thing. That person didn't deserve to be thrown in. But he was thrown into the ultimate storm of God's wrath, God's justice. For the sins of mankind, for the sins of the world. And yet, he substitutes himself for the sailors, for Jonah's, for us. Why? So that because of his sacrifice, the storm will cease. And the extent to which you see that, and the degree to which you see that, and saying, with that God, God is not punishing you in your storm. He took your punishment on the cross. And to the extent that you and I see Jesus saying, throw me in for them, the extent to which you and I will become wiser and deeper. There are some of you here, your storms aren't your fault. Storms are because of what other people did or living in a corrupted world. And you're asking the question, God, why is this storm happening to me? Why? And the Christian God doesn't tell us why, but he gives us something just as powerful. Can I, am I the only one? I can't worship a God who is immune to pain and suffering. How can you live in a world filled with pain and suffering and worship a God who says, I have no idea what that's like. And you know what the Christian God says? I have exactly, I know what that's like. I went through the ultimate pain and ultimate suffering. I went to, depending on theology, Jesus says, I went to hell and back for you. So for those of us saying, God, why is this happening to me? God may not decide of heaven to give us the answer why. But if you go, do you have any idea? Our God says, remember I was thrown in for you so that he could do something about it. Last Sunday, after service, Crystal, who is our treasurer accountant person, came up to me and she says, Pastor Peter, she says, somebody put something in the offering. I think you should see it. I said, what is it? She said, somebody put in their engagement ring in the offering bag with a note. Now, you and I live in America and young, single ladies, guys too, this is more than just, yeah, well, monetarily. This to me is somebody who is saying, throw me in, all of it. Not if, not if you, here it is. And the back of this note was the hymn, I Surrender All. And in front of the hymn, in front of the note is simply, Lord, use the temporal value of this for your eternal purpose, for the furtherance of the kingdom of God to the glory and praise. An engagement ring. What are you holding on to and saying, I'm in control of my life? 
This is my righteousness. This is my significance. And to obey God, to surrender to God, seems like death, seems like God, I'm going to be lost. And yet God, your heavenly Father, lovingly comes and says, my child, I was thrown in into the ultimate sea of storm for you. Trust me. Trust me. And obey. Because underneath the waves is awaiting for you gracious provision of our Heavenly Father. God, we come this morning We did this last Sunday, and uh, I'm almost a little bit hesitant to do it again, but I think I need to obey God. Last Sunday, I asked those of you who were running from God in your religion as well as your irreligion, who are running from God with the fundamental attitude of, I'm in charge of my life. I have not surrendered all to stand up, and about two-thirds of you stood up. And this Sunday, the challenge gets a little bit, a little bit more difficult. Because the challenge is not only your admission that you're running from God in your goodness, morality, in your compliance, or in your self-righteousness. Today, the challenge is for you to say, God, this is my engagement ring. God, this is the idol. This is the significance, God. This is my patch of righteousness. And I'm scared to surrender it, but I need to. I'm scared to be completely and wholeheartedly surrendered, but I need to. Transformation and change comes when you stand up and take responsibility. Stop bargaining with God. And you take refuge in God, not from God. And what I'm going to do this morning is, and we're not going to spend a long time doing this because this is a holy moment, but I don't want it to drag on forever. The Holy Spirit has been prompting and speaking to your heart for whatever that thing is. I need you to get up out of your seat and I need you to come all the way to the front and I need you to get on your knees as I will too. Not just as a bodily, but a total symbolic gesture of God, utter surrender to you, utter and total surrender to you. I'm willing to take that step, God, by the grace of God, so help me. Will you get out of your seats and will you come up to the front and join me? talking to you, Jonas, I'm talking to you. And as I did last Sunday, I'm going to wait until every person who wants to. And don't be a coward. Don't be fearful. Come on up. Come on up. I'm going to wait for the people in the balcony. They're scoring about to come on up. Will you kneel with me? Come on up. I'm going to continue to wait. Come on up. Come all the way up. Come all the way up. Come all the way up. And I want you to kneel before God. Now kneel before God. Kneel before your Heavenly Father. Anybody else? Is there anybody else? Anybody else? It's a simple prayer for those of you that are up here, but pray that prayer saying, God, I will love you, period. I will serve you. Period. I will surrender it all. Period. Not bargaining, not if you, not whether. Period. It's throwing yourself into the arms of your Savior. It's obeying radically.
Pray for my brothers and my sisters that are up here. Front. God, I thank you for their courage. I thank you for their boldness. I thank you for their humility, God. And God, you know exactly where they are. And God, what they are doing feels like complete and utter, terrifying obedience in darkness. It's like throwing ourselves, God, into the deep sea, wondering, God, are you going to catch me? Remind them today who it is that we worship and who it is that we serve. May you sing this with me? I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior. I pray a prayer of benediction. Those of you that are up front, don't move. We do have a barbecue and I want all of us if you don't have plans to be out in the area, fellowshipping, laughing, eating together. But this is a holy moment, sacred moment for many of us who need to do business with God. And I don't want to short circuit it and I don't want to cut it off. So I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing, benediction, and then sort of officially and formally release you, church. He loves you. If you need proof, just look at the cross. He is for you. If you need proof, just look at the cross. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. If you need proof, take a look at the cross. 
as you leave this place, child of God, son, daughter of God, may God go before you, behind you, and beside you. May the sunshine of God's mercy and grace that came because of his sacrifice warm your heart, warm your soul as you live your life as a kingdom person. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. We'll be out there in a few minutes. For those of you that need to go, go ahead. And we'll see you out there. All to thee, my blessing.